Hello, I'm Earl Fontanelle, and you are listening to the Schwepp, the Secret History of Western Esotericism podcast, online at schwepp.net. Episode 130, Methodologies for Studying the Subtle Body. This episode is the first part of a little two-part mini-series. In part two, we're going to survey a number of curious theories found among certain Platonists of antiquity and in certain esoteric religious texts from roughly the same period, pointing to some kind of third thing, neither the body nor the soul, which we humans possess, which influences both the body and the soul. As you will see, this discussion will draw together many of the authors and movements we've been discussing in the podcast so far. But before we get to that material, which really lies at the roots of Western esoteric speculations about a subtle body or bodies, we thought it would be interesting and probably necessary to cast a wider net and consider the idea of the subtle body more generally and to discuss some of the methodological problems which arise when you want to study these subtle bodies. And so we begin from the truly classical source material for Western esoteric thought. I refer, of course, to Steve Ditko and Stan Lee's classic run of Doctor Strange comics from the 1960s. We last saw Doctor Strange in our discussion of methodologies for the study of mysticism way back in episode 14, because the good doctor is, as is well known, the master of the mystic arts. But in his earliest appearance, he made a much more direct appeal to the culture or a culture of the occult 60s. He was the master of black magic. Now, on this first appearance, in issue 110 of the anthology comic Strange Tales, published by Marvel, the good doctor is able to leave his body and go flying around as a sort of semi-transparent ghost, while his gross physical body remains motionless and empty. Like a fleeting ghost, his metaphysical spirit leaves his motionless body and drifts away, to quote Strange Tales 110. Now, Dr. Strange here is accessing something which I will wager our listeners will find familiar. This is the idea of a subtle body, the astral form, capable of separation from the physical body and of going on discarnate journeys and flying around. If you look into the literature on this subject, or at least a certain type of literature on this subject, and we should note here that the vast majority of what has been written about the subtle body in the West is not by scholars, but by various shades of believers in subtle bodies, including a large swathe of what we might call New Age spirituality type stuff. If you look into this material, you're going to find often universalist claims along the lines of, in every traditional culture on earth, there is belief in a spirit body or a subtle body or an energy body or something like this. Simon Paul Cox wrote his doctoral thesis on the subject of the subtle body, forthcoming at the time of recording as a book with Oxford University Press. Now, in his thesis, he says of the subtle body, quote, on the historical level, we're told it is absolutely ubiquitous, something represented in all times and climes, from the occult physiology of Siberian shamans or contemporary African hunter-gatherers to medieval Taoist recluses, Renaissance magicians, and Mayan medicine, end of quote. So, is this true? Well, there's a strong discourse of perennialism in discussion of subtle bodies. Every culture on earth or every traditional culture or every culture in touch with the perennial wisdom, you know, pick your poison, 
all of these cultures have beliefs in a subtle body of some kind, which is different from the gross physical material body. Now, this isn't actually true, gentle listener. Or rather, this isn't falsifiable, because of course, someone who claims that this is true, if faced with evidence from many cultures which don't have subtle body beliefs, they can just turn around and say, yes, well, obviously those people are not part of the perennial wisdom or not a truly traditional culture or whatever. So first of all, it is not true that every known culture on earth has a belief in a subtle body. But it is true to say that beliefs in something which we might call a subtle body are remarkably widespread in many cultures. Uh, see the 2013 volume of collected essays edited by Samuel and Johnston in the bibliography to this episode for a fascinating survey of some of this evidence. Now, not only does that fascinating volume cover what we might think of as some of the usual suspects, Tibetan and Indian tantric traditions, Chinese Taoist internal arts, uh, and even the Platonist vehicle of the soul, which will be the subject of the next episode, that volume also points out in various places that subtle body ideas are alive and well in the modern West, though they're not exactly mainstream. A number of quite contemporary beliefs at large in the modern Western marketplace of ideas maintain the existence of subtle bodies or energy bodies or spiritual bodies, this sort of thing. In the study of near-death experiences, there are regular reports of people zipping around in something suspiciously like Dr. Strange's metaphysical spirit form. Alternative therapies of various kinds insist on the necessity of healing our spiritual bodies, under various names, from subtle traumas that they have undergone which impact our physical health. Acupuncture and traditional Chinese medicine operate on something like a subtle body uh, model, uh, and that's fairly widespread around the world. And it seems like, to generalize, pretty much every New Ager seems to believe in chakras or similar subtle energy structures within the human being. And many of these people are modern Westerners. Now, this brings us to our first methodological problem that we wanted to point out in this episode. There is a lot of hand-waving by energy healers of various sorts, um, and there's also psychic surgeries, uh, which often result in remarkably physical things being removed from patients by, let's face it, sleight of hand, and a whole lot of other wellness-type stuff in the modern West, all based on the idea that there's some kind of psychic body or invisible subtle body. And some people would be inclined to dismiss all of it as a load of hooey, while others would consider it essential medical practice. So which is it? Or is this a false dichotomy? Well, first of all, let me say that our point here in this episode and in future episodes is not even to question the existence of such a subtle body, but rather to document the history of the idea of such a subtle body in the West. Now, we don't want to, to question the existence of such a subtle body because in the first place, we can't really even say what our so-called physical body is. And in the second place, psychosomatic effects, in other words, demonstrable effects of the state of mind on the physical body, are one of the ro most robust findings of modern medical science. We'll come back to that in a minute. But again, our goal is primarily to trace the intellectual genealogy of the idea that we might have a subtle body. Nevertheless, we need to take some kind of methodological stance as to its reality or not. 
So we can state our position here at the Schwepp as one of neutral suspension of disbelief and point out that since the placebo effect is real, there clearly is a two-way feedback, not only from the body to the mind, whatever the body and the mind might actually be, but also from the mind to the body, such that believing you've been cured of something often means you actually are cured. And if that is the case, which it is, uh, this pretty much means that something like the subtle body does exist, even if we don't call it the subtle body, call it the mind, or whatever we want to call it. In other words, energy healing and a host of other medical practices, or you can call them pseudo-medicine or elaborate placebo effects, call them whatever you want, they can actually work or seem to work as though there really were some kind of subtle energy currents linking the mind and body and allowing for the mind or why not call it the spiritual form or the subtle body or whatever, to affect the body. I think that in a general way, and speaking not as a trained medical professional, this would seem to be a fair way of putting the situation vis-a-vis -vis the evidence for placebo effects in medical research. Uh, although it's not a way that many uh, trained medical professionals will find congenial. So our methodological stance when faced with subtle bodies, or similar, is to accept them as a fact of human experience in a given cultural and individual context and leave it there. But this thing about energy healing brings up our second rather interesting methodological problem for the study of the subtle body. When we turn to the Platonists in the next episode, we shall see that they not only believed in a subtle body, specifically they consider that there's a subtle but still material vehicle of the soul, which sort of glues the incorporeal soul to the corporeal physical body. But they don't just believe it, they live it. For Porphyry, following Aristotle, the pneumatic body, the body made of pneuma, wasn't just glue. It was the part of the human being that does a lot of the stuff, sense perception and imagination, for example, which a basic soul-body dualism would attribute to the soul. In other words, if you are your soul in the truest sense of who you are, which you are for Porphyry, and your soul is not engaged in the whole process of en engaging with the external world through the senses, making images out of the sense perceptions and thus generating our entire experience of what it is to exist in the world as a living organism, well then, you are fundamentally not engaging with the world as a living organism. Your pneuma is... You are thus a soul experiencing the world through a set of pneumatic sensory organs, which are in turn linked up to the gross physical organs like the eyes and the ears and so on. Now that's a different way of experiencing the world than a modern materialist might experience the world. For this person, this modern materialist, let's call him Steve, he truly is his gross body and he's experiencing sense data in a very direct way. Even if Steve can't explain how that works, which he can't, he feels like he really sees stuff through his eyes, right? Now, this is just one example taken from Porphyry, whom we've been discussing recently in the podcast, of how ideas about what a human being is made of, how a human being is constituted, uh, with very various layers of bodies and incorporeal soul, astral influences playing a role, and so forth as I hope will be clear, really affects the way in which Porphyry, or someone like him, would experience the world. 
We could also adduce another troubling example from antiquity, and one where there's a lot less scope for just saying this has nothing to do with lived experience. It's just theory, right? Some people would say that about Porphyry. He has these weird ideas about astral bodies, but really he's living in a body just like everyone else and experiencing things just like everyone else. And by everyone else, the assumption would be some kind of normative materialist uh, construction of the human being. No, I refer, of course, here to the immortal, invisible bodies acquired by the Hermetic Adept in Corpus Hermeticum 13. Again, we are told of this body, and it is a body in that text. It is not visible to the naked eye, but it is detectable by the eye of the noose. And we are also told that possessing this immortal body somehow changes everything for the lucky recipient of such a body. It makes them immortal, for one thing. Living as an immortal being is surely, phenomenologically, a different way of living to living in a transitory physical body with a built-in time limit, right? I mean, nothing uh, changes your view on life than the sense that you're going to die shortly, right? And if you feel like you're never going to die, that's going to change your view on life. Hence, the belief that you possess an immortal body is a huge factor in how you live, potentially, right? Now, the methodological problem here is just a variant of the old and very intractable problem of interpreting experience. But in this case, the problem is maybe more acute than just the problem of interpreting experience generally, and here's why. In recent scholarship, there has been a move toward uh, corporeality as a tool for understanding human experience, culture, and so forth. This has even been called the bodily turn or the corporeal turn in scholarship. Now, to take an example from the podcast, as Francis Flannery said in episode 54, when we're trying to interpret ancient dreams, written accounts of ancient dreams, we're faced with a number of problems, but at least we can agree that ancient people, like modern people, had a physical body and that there are thus physiological constants which we can investigate and which will link human experience across time in different cultural scenarios. Okay, but what if the ancients saw themselves as having more than one body? What if the body that's dreaming isn't the physical body, but the pneumatic body, to take one example? Well, you might say, well, we don't need to take them seriously. Uh, people believe all manner of weird stuff, but everyone can agree that the physical body exists. And I'm with you up to a point but I would at least open the question of whether someone whose experience of sensing the world takes place within a material body with which they identify, that would be your common or garden variety modern materialist, Steve, whether that person experiences the world differently to someone, let's call him Rupert, who does not identify with the material body at all, or not primarily, yet experiences potentially a number of other bodies and potentially experiences all their experiences through these other bodies, including their experience of the so-called physical body. It's a bit of a problem. And if this is all confusing, which it probably is, that it just points us to why this is so difficult. Now, there are further problems here. Until the materialists come up with a solid theory of how consciousness is possible for purely material physical beings, and uh, the magical thinking of epiphenomenologist claims do not count as explanations. They're just assumptions, at least in the current state of research. Uh, we could ask the question, why on earth we should privilege a reductionist materialist account as the baseline against which other models of human beings should be judged? 
Now, a brain scientist might step in here and say, hang on a minute, we have loads of reason to uh, think that there are really strong correlations between brain states that we can measure in the lab and the kind of subjective experiential affects that happen to people's minds that they can then report. And I would say, yes, that's true, but this is a correlation. This is not uh, any proof of causality or anything like that. It's a huge problem. It's known as the hard problem of consciousness for a reason. But having cast the whole uh, baseline materialist reductionist approach to body and mind into some limbo of doubt, let's look back at what we can say about the subtle body. If we look at human cultures, as we mentioned earlier, there would seem to be a lot of subtle body about. However, we are doubtful of any ahistorical claims that this is a universal facet of quote, traditional human societies or similar type stuff, a claim which is drearily common in New Age literature, for example. And incidentally, what the hell is a traditional human society? Either all societies are traditional, because they all have traditions after all, if traditions are a real thing, or none are if traditions aren't a real thing. And then also incidentally, here at the Schwepp, we're always suspicious when anyone mentions shamanism or other made up perennial traditions. And indeed, when we start to investigate this idea that the subtle body is a ubiquitous facet of traditional societies around the world, it proves to be a hideous oversimplification and an example of shoehorning of the sort which gave rise to the dubious concept of shamanism in the first place. The idea of a subtle body is very interesting and does play an important role in many strands of Western esotericism but it develops in a historical way which can be traced in some, if not all, of its details. In other words, even if people really do have subtle bodies, we can trace the development of ideas about what they are and what they do and how they work in very concrete, historicized ways. Now, one thing that emerges in the study of the ancient theories is that scholarship is guilty of its own shoehorning here. This is an aside, but this will become... Uh, more important in the next episode. So when you look at all the material in ancient Platonism and its Platonistic religious cousins from antiquity, which might be grouped together in a file marked subtle body, you get a bunch of really different stuff. Now, much of this stuff tends to be ignored or downplayed in scholarship, like Plotinus's complex and important theories and practices of a number of subtle bodies. But when it is treated... It tends to be filed not under subtle body, but under theory of the soul vehicle. Um, and this is probably because there have been a few very important and influential pieces of writing by E.R. Dodds, R.C. Kissling, and others, which introduced all this material under the rubric of vehicle of the soul, and it's just sort of stuck. And we do find the pneuma that glues the soul to the body and serves some other functions in the Platonists. But scholarly treatment of ancient subtle body material has taken this doctrine of the ochema pneuma, the, the vehicle pneuma, or spiritual vehicle, as a sort of master category under which all this data should be made to fit, and this isn't quite right. So what are we to make of Plotinus's account of incorporeal yet corporeal in some unfathomable way noetic bodies, which he not only maintains exist, but he describes what it's like to be in one in ways which are very troubling indeed to anyone who wants to just say that the whole thing is the product of some kind of theoretical uh, inheritance. 
What are we to make of the idea of astral accretions, which attach to the descending soul and affect her in her bodily life, taking the form in some accounts of the classical astral body? And yes, gentle listener, that is where astral body comes from. We'll talk about that next time. Or what about the body of light found not only in some Platonists, but in the Christian father origin? What about the invisible immortal body of Corpus Hermeticum 13 and the immortal resurrection bodies theorized by Christianity and Islam? And then there are, are all the different functions accorded to these various types of subtle bodies. Sometimes they can help us journey out of the physical body and then go flying around like Dr. Strange, but sometimes they help the soul assimilate itself to the gods, as in Yamlakian theurgy, which is kind of a out-of-body journey of a sort, but rather different to when Dr. Strange flies to Tibet in spirit form to visit his master, the Ancient One. They uh, serve as the means by which the gods punish us in between lives in many of the late Platonists. And they perform all kinds of other functions, including in a down-to-earth medical context. Sicknesses of the body can most definitely arise from sicknesses of the, well, the other body. And we're not talking here about metaphysics or Platonism or Hermitism. We're talking about the ancient medical writer Galen, who is a believer in the pneumatic vehicle of the soul and in treating it as part of medical practice. So, These are all different phenomena, right? So this is our third main methodological problem. By lumping all of these quite different phenomena together under a single heading, in this case I've plonked for subtle body, but this is a term which actually arises in the 17th century, not in antiquity, we are doing an injustice or potential injustice to the source material. So why are we doing it? Well, partly we just need a term to cover uh, the all-important theory of the pneumatic body, before we can discuss Yamblichus, Yamblichian theurgy, and Porphyry's problems with said. And when you approach this ancient idea of a pneumatic body or vehicle mediating between the soul and the body, a bunch of other interesting stuff wants to come along for the ride, such as the astral accretions and the potentially salvific role played by this pneumatic vehicle in the ascent and divinization of the soul, which of course then leads one immediately to think of the immortal god body of Corpus Hermeticum 13, and so on and so forth. But I also do think that there are enough meaningful parallels across this subtle body material to make it worthwhile discussing it under a single heading while being careful to concentrate on the differences as well as the similarities, but most importantly not to let the category rule the evidence, as I think has been done in the scholarship in this case though the master category has tended to be vehicle of the soul rather than subtle body. And this problem has been dealt with in scholarship in the 2013 volume edited by Samuel and Johnston, which seems to be the first really robust scholarly attempt to tackle a number of different subtle body traditions from an academic perspective. This volume settles reluctantly on the term subtle body as the best we can do in a comparative perspective. So I'm happy to follow those guys since they've thought long and hard about finding a better terminological framework and come up with nothing better. However, we have to be clear that when we speak of subtle body traditions, in quotes, we're not using a clean term of scholarly coinage. We're using a term which actually originates within Western esotericism. In other words, our scholarship of Western esotericism here is being forced to use the terms of Western esotericism. This isn't the first time, and it won't be the last. 
Uh, in fact, as we know, the term Western esotericism comes out of Western esotericism originally. But we should be aware of this stuff, even as we use the terminology. Now, from the modern perspective, the idea of a subtle body seems really to have an independent life within esoteric thought, and even within the wider culture at large. What do we mean by this? Well, let's go back to the classic Ditko Dr. Strange and his metaphysical spirit. This is, I would argue, an example of a culture, a term drawn from the work of Christopher Partridge, which a lot of scholars have time for as we try to model the ways in which ideas whose ultimate source lies in occultism, the fairly focused, fairly elite set of 19th century movements, that's occultism with a capital O, how these ideas have a much broader influence, both in the occult, with a lowercase o, the occult being the cultural grab bag where things of a generally oogly-boogly nature tend to be lumped together in the popular mind, right? And in a culture, which is really culture as a whole in as much as it is saturated with these ideas that are, have an original provenance in occultism. So Dr. Strange as a culture, the idea that we have a metaphysical spirit known elsewhere in the Dr. Strange dossier as the astral body, the spirit image, the ethereal self, or my personal favorite, the mental projecto image. This idea doesn't come from nowhere. Stan Lee, the writer of these early Dr. Strange adventures, did not make it up, nor does it come from everywhere. It is not simply a perennial belief of humanity, if it were, it wouldn't be a very good candidate for Dr. Strange's mystic powers, would it? It would just be the normal, everyday view of things. And the subtle body which can go flying around was also not part of mainstream Christianity or mainstream American folk belief prior to the 1960s. It came from occultism, especially the, the Theosophical Society, with, I think, a side order of influence from Mesmer and the theoretical frameworks that he set in motion. But the fact that both Lee and Ditko and the general reading public of the 1960s would all resonate with this idea and recognize it as precisely occult is a sign that they are all participating in a culture. And we, the reader, when we pick up these classic Doctor Strange adventures and read it, instantly know what's going on, which is a sign that we too are acculturated. Uh, we don't have to have read Blavatsky or G.R.S. Mead or Leadbeater or Besant or Steiner or Crowley or anyone like that, all of whom incidentally talk a lot about astral bodies or similar, we don't have to read any of them to have absorbed into our pores, as it were, the idea of out-of-body travel through the agency of such a subtle, mysterious, normally invisible body. In fact, the Theosophical Society and their countless publications and offshoots are the main proximate source for modern occultural ideas about the astral body. The Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, a small but very intellectually influential occultist order of the late 19th century, had an elaborate practice of astral traveling mapped onto a version of John Dee's Enochian system. It gets pretty complex, but nevertheless, astral traveling is something they were into. And for them, the astral body was a given. It was just something that they knew was there. And this was because they had their own bricolage of earlier esoteric sources and theosophy. G.R.S. Mead, an important theosophical writer and channel for the mass marketization of previously hard-to-get esoteric materials, in other words, a very important uh, bridge builder for a culture, 
uh, whose works have already appeared in episode 101 of the podcast in the context of the early 20th century popularization of the Corpus Hermeticum, uh, good old G.R.S. Mead also contributed to the popularization of the subtle body with his 1919 book, Doctrine of the Subtle Body in Western Tradition. Mead there states that the subtle body is, of course, a real thing, and it's, of course, crucial for mastering the occult arts, but also adds that it is sometimes, quote, envisaged as a thin replica of the gross body, as a diaphanous double of the dense frame, end of quote. In other words, something like Dr. Strange's metaphysical spirit, which appears in the comics as a see-through white outline of Dr. Strange himself, complete with his awesome gloves, sash, and mysterious mustache. So where did the theosophists and English occult orders get this idea from? For it to have become common enough knowledge by the 1960s that Dr. Strange can make it it into one of his signature uh, wardrobe items, along with magical all-seeing eye amulet and trendsetting cloak. Well, gentle listener, this long story of cultural evolution is a very long story, and we shall have to explore it in the course of our detail-oriented podcast. But let me just tell you now that it is a tale which leads to hidden temples in the remote vastness of Asia, as Strange Tales issue 110 puts it. Or rather, it leads back from the Theosophical Society in a big way. The Theosophical Society, as we know, represents, among other things, an opening of the floodgates of Sanskritic and other non-Western cultural spheres into Western occultism. And the remote vastness of Asia that I just referred to is exactly the ideological terrain of wisdom and secrets that Orientalism, including the Orientalism of Blavatsky and her colleagues, constructs. However, the subtle body actually has a very deep history in the Western sphere, in certain esoteric currents of thought within ancient Hellenic culture. So bridging the gap between this Western material and the later theosophical synthesis will be one of our jobs in the podcast going forward. But we can say here that this is a down-home development, if by down-home you mean ancient uh, pre-Western Hellenic development. So in the next episode, we shall begin the long process of tracing the history of the subtle body in ancient Greek thought. And as the podcast progresses, we shall hit a number of stops along the way, including but not limited to Sufism, of course, the Kabbalah, of course, the Cambridge Platonists, Mesmer, Carl Jung, and finally, the pinnacle of Western occulture, the classic Ditko run on Doctor Strange. As Samuel and Johnston point out, quote, subtle body concepts and practices existed long before theosophy came along, and the need for a coherent and systematic approach to them remains, irrespective of the value one places on the specifically theosophical version of these ideas, end of quote. So with that firmly in mind, join us next time as we explore the subtle body in ancient Platonism and Platonistic religious currents. And until then, be like the wisdom of the great Doctor Strange and stay esoteric. <laughs>